Welcome to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. In every episode, we bring you insights into the teams behind the teams in professional football. Coming up on today's episode. If you don't get trust and buy-in, and it feels like such a cliche because everybody um, mentions that, but if you don't have that, then you're just kind of working in a bubble and you might as well be kind of sat at a university working, uh, you know, in the proverbial ivory tower. I'm Simon Austin from Training Ground Guru and our guest on today's episode is Sarah Rudd. For almost a decade, Sarah was Vice President of Analytics for StatDNA and Arsenal, making her one of the most senior women in the Premier League. She's now co-founded her own analytics company with husband Ravi Ramaneni called Source Football. In this episode, Sarah told us about her work with Arsenal, her wider career and her thoughts on the future of analytics. We hope you enjoy and if you do, please give us a follow via your podcast provider. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast, Sarah. Yeah, my pleasure. It's great to great to be here and chat. And what are you up to at the moment, work-wise? So about, uh, I think, eight months ago now, um, my husband, Ravi Ramaneni, uh, and myself, as well as our business partner, Cole Grossman, um, we decided to start uh, a company called Source Football. And so what we are is we're a small um, football analytics consultancy company. So really what we're doing is trying to help out clubs that are in the early stage of their analytics journey um, and kind of just like turbo boost what they're doing. Um, so typically clubs that maybe don't have an analytics department or maybe they've hired one data scientist but aren't really sure how to integrate them into the decision-making process. Um, so that's kind of our target audience with this company. And so, you know, we want to help get them started and then eventually get them to be self-sufficient. Um, every club you know, sees a competitive advantage in this, so it makes sense to eventually want to move things in-house. Um, and when, you know, we help them get to that stage, and when they get to that stage, then the idea is we shift over towards working on some of the, you know, strategic research questions that people within a football club would love to answer, but never really have the time to do so. We had uh, Luke Bourne on the podcast a couple of years ago, who'd worked at Roma and Sacramento Kings. And he's now doing a similar type of thing, I think. Do, do you think more and more clubs are kind of outsourcing their data analytics in that way? Yeah, I, th- I think so. You know, I think the early stage of uh, analytics was do everything in-house and then you kind of develop things in a bubble. Um, certainly when I was at Arsenal, things were quite secretive. We were working in isolation. I think now people are also seeing that there's a lot of benefit in understanding, you know, what's a a third party opinion on how to do this, what else is out there. Um, But I think also, you know, a lot of clubs find themselves behind. Um, And so collaborating with, you know, a third party is a great way to catch up rather than trying to build everything yourself, because it's really difficult to make up that ground if you're having to reinvent the wheel from from zero. And what sort of projects would you be looking at longer term with a club? No football club can really leverage tracking data properly. Um, So that's one of the big areas of research that we are looking into, um, particularly with the kind of prolification of broadcast 
tracking data. So now you can kind of use tracking data to answer a lot of questions around recruitment, which you couldn't in the past. Um, so I think that's going to be a really heavy area of focus for us, um, as well as player development. Um, I think that's one area that a lot of football clubs are very interested in now. Um, the market is too expensive for a lot of clubs to go out and look for players. Um, so a lot of clubs are coming to us asking, you know, how can we develop talent in-house more effectively and more efficiently. And what do you think of the state of data analytics in football at the moment? How many clubs are doing it well? I would still say it's, um, it's very few clubs are doing it well. Um, you know, and I think in, in my experience and then my husband's experience, my husband was at the Seattle Sounders for about 10 years, um, had a much smaller budget than I did. You know, the club itself had a smaller budget. He won two titles there. They were in the final four out of five years. So uh, obviously what they were doing worked really, really well. When we talk about clubs doing analytics well, I think there's the data science side to it in terms of like producing good work. And then there's the implementation side of it and who can actually influence decision making, which clubs have good decision making processes. And I think the combination of those two is, is quite rare. And then I think what we, we see is that when you are successful with that, it's very difficult to sustain as well. Certain clubs might be possibly moving away from what made them successful or the conditions that made them successful have changed and so they can't continue doing that they have to change and do something different so you know i would still say quite you know quite a small number of clubs are doing it well um i think there's a large number of clubs uh that are getting started and i think they're doing good interesting work but i think outside of england and the united states um and maybe italy italy has come along quite a ways um the rest of the world is still kind of lagging quite a bit and there's a lot of you know opportunity there for clubs in those those markets to kind of gain a competitive advantage that's very interesting what you said about it being difficult to sustain is that in terms of personnel changing yeah i mean it could be in terms of personnel changing um you know we all know football clubs have massive egos and so everybody thinks that success was due to them and so the balance of power tends to shift a little bit and you know People naturally want to grow um, depending on where you are and kind of the, the ladder of football. People will naturally move on. But I think, too, you know, markets change, other clubs catch up, um, you know, things like that. Uh, so, yeah, it's really difficult to sustain, I think. And I think that was one of the difficult things at Arsenal. We were such an early adopter. Um, you know, I think... I joined January of 2012. We were acquired by, or well, I joined Statine January of 2012. They were already um, working with Arsenal at the time, and then we were acquired at the end of 2012. Um, Liverpool, I think their department started right around then, uh, maybe a year or two before or after. But because it was so cutting edge, we didn't talk to anyone, and they didn't want us talking to anyone. And so we kind of went on our path. Liverpool went on their path. City have done... Uh, their thing. Um, and so it's made it quite difficult. And then you see, you know, a lot of the discussion in the public sphere around state of analytics and like sometimes they're going down maybe like a path that you wouldn't necessarily recommend. Sometimes they're doing really good work and you're like, wow, why didn't we think of that? And so then you start wondering like, well, what else are people doing that we haven't thought of? So yeah, it's it's quite difficult and I don't know a good way 
around it, to be honest, because everybody wants to protect their competitive advantage. But I think, you know, for the good of the industry, I think a lot of times it's good to share because it isn't fun to be doing the same thing as everybody, like solving the same boring problems as everybody else. Uh, sometimes it's like, well, I wish someone had just written a library and then we could all do the, use the that for the boring stuff and then spend our time on the interesting stuff. And you talked there about stat DNA and Arsenal. So I was wondering if we could go right back to the start there, back to 2012. H how did Arsenal's acquisition of stat DNA come about? Arsenal had been like an exclusive client of stat DNA. Um, so I think, uh, you know, people like Hendrik Olmstad, who's now at AC Milan, uh, Ivan Gazidis, they saw the potential in something like this and the competitive advantage. So they had signed stat DNA to an exclusive deal within the Premier League. So we couldn't have any other Premier League clients. Um, and then I think they realized there was an incredible value in the type of data that we were collecting. So StatDNA wasn't just an analytics company, we were also a data provider as well. And so we were collecting at that time really kind of rich context around the events. Um, and I think they saw the value in, in having that and not letting any of their competitors have that. And so, you know, they decided it made sense to just kind of bootstrap their department by acquiring a company, which I think made a lot of sense. Is it fair to say that Arsene Wenger was very on board with this from the earliest days? That's how it seems from what I've read. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, he's a very smart man. So he was critical of a lot of things, questioning things. Um, you know, I've seen things in the press saying like, oh, he never rated Stat DNA, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, if you look at who is working at FIFA with him, it's Jason Rosenfeld, who's the founder and CEO of Stat DNA. So clearly the two of them got along. Um, and enjoy working with each other. So yeah, he was um, he was very helpful. Were you able to directly impact the recruitment and the coaching then back in those days, do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's always difficult to tell because in those days, Wenger was kind of the sole decision maker. And so he would kind of listen to everybody and then make his decision. So, you know, how much is coming from the data side? How much is coming from the scouting side? How much is coming from him himself? Um, it's always, I think, really difficult to say, but, um, you know, we worked quite closely with his backroom staff and, and coaching staff. And so, you know, even if we weren't in the room with him necessarily, like telling him to do this, there was certainly influence coming from various stakeholders around him as well. You know, we had a really great relationship uh, and still do. I mean, Statine is still part of Arsenal, even though I've left and Jason has left. Um, but, you know, the, the performance analysis department, I think that's one of the areas where great working relationship between kind of objective data, subjective analysis um, and then influencing the coaching side through that. Was the influence mainly on recruitment back in those days, would you say? So there was kind of pre-acquisition and post-acquisition. I think pre-acquisition was really focused on recruitment um, because there was a lot of things that they didn't want to kind of let an external uh, service provider see. Um, so a lot of things around like match preparation, um, they said, no thanks, we're gonna keep that in house. And I think that, you know, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but then post acquisition, we actually were involved in a, a host of, of areas. So a lot in recruitment, but then a lot in terms of pre-match, post-match preparation, um, you know, team performance analysis, which would then lead into recruitment and squads needs analysis. 
Um, and then even doing some work in terms of uh, like on the fitness and medical side. Um, so trying to tackle some of the injury prevention issues and, and stuff like that. We had a presentation a few years ago from the Arsenal data scientist, Mikhail Zilkin. And he was telling us about the colour-coded nutrition information in the Arsenal canteen, which was based on the players' GPS results from training. Would that have been the sort of thing that you would have got involved in as well? Mikhail, his role opened up um, because we did not have the bandwidth, we being Statine, didn't have the bandwidth to kind of support all of those areas. Because um, I think the one that I left off as well is the academy. And so, you know, the kind of human performance department um, they said, look, we really need like dedicated um, person on the ground here that can sit in the office with us day to day and help us answer these questions. So, you know, we we got started on the early side of things and, um, you know, doing things like getting all the GPS data, all the historical data off of somebody's laptop that they had uh, kind of discarded and saying, no, 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 that's that's probably valuable. We want that. Uh, so doing all the fun work like that. And then uh, MZ came in um, and then he's really kind of pushed things on as well. So I think it's been really good having a dedicated person there for that. Is one of the big issues with data science having it as part of the culture and getting that buy-in from senior people and different departments? And is that something you did manage to do over time? Yeah, I, th I think so. I think that's a, a huge part. I mean, if you don't get trust and buy-in and it feels like such a cliche because everybody... Um, mentions that, but if you don't have that, then you're just kind of working in a bubble and you might as well be kind of sat at a university working, uh, you know, in the proverbial ivory tower. Um, so I think that's, that's really important. And so one of the methods that we use to kind of get that buy-in is link everything to video so that we're not really talking about models or we're talking about data, we're talking about football on the pitch. And so I think um, that was really, really useful because you could sit down um, with a member of staff, like a Steve Bolt, and just watch like 20 video clips and say, well, this is what the model is saying here. What do you see? And he'll be like, well, I disagree with this. Like, you know, are you taking into account these factors? And then those factors would turn into features for the next iteration of the model. And so when you kind of operate like that, then he feels ownership over the model because he got to give feedback. He knows what it means. He knows what's going into it. He's seen with his eyes where it works well, where it doesn't. Um, so I think, you know, that's a really important aspect to it that maybe I didn't appreciate early on in my career. Um, and I think that's where somebody like my husband at the Seattle Sounders, um, because he was, you know, basically sat in the coach's office all the time, they would have those types of conversations all the time. And so then you know, it's really a lot of buy-in because they say like, yeah, this guy really understands the game. We're speaking the same language. We have the same kind of concepts when we say this. Um, so, so I think that is like a really big key to making this all work. I was wondering if that was hard actually with it because StatDNA was based in Chicago. So there is that distance between Arsenal and StatDNA. Yeah, it was actually worse than that because the headquarters were in Seattle, or sorry, in Chicago. I was always in Seattle um, you know, there were people in Boston, uh, Salt Lake. So we were kind of spread out all over the place. So even within the U.S., we weren't concentrated. So it certainly made things difficult. Um, you know, having that personal relationship with people 
is very important. But the upside to it is that football training grounds are incredibly distracting places to do work. Um, you know, there's loads of people buzzing about. There's lots of things to do. Everybody's hyper-focused on the next match. Um, and people have loads of questions that are like so important right now. Um, and if they don't answer them, uh, you know, it's the end of the world. And then, you know, the next day they forget about it. So being physically removed from that had the advantage that we could go off and work a little bit in isolation, in peace and quiet, and kind of do some of the deep thinking that we needed to do. Um, but you know, the, the way that we got around it, and I don't know if this was the right way to handle it, um, we, we would travel over there quite a bit. So we actually had a house near the training ground. Um, and so there would just be a rotating cast of people from Statine staying there and, um, you know, probably wasn't more than like a week or two where there wasn't somebody from Statine on the ground there. I did an interview with Victor Manias, uh, Unai Emery's assistant, his analyst, and he was quite interested in actually talking about the, the link-up with StatDNA. And he did have one quote. He said, we found the amount of data we received a bit overwhelming. So he, he was getting the tracking data, I think. And he, he said he couldn't always action it, really, it, which was quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair criticism. You know, one of the really hard things is, uh, and I think the term I heard earlier this week is the right dosage. Um, so figuring out what's the right dosage for each individual. And so I think when you have a coaching staff change, like we went through, um, it can be quite difficult to find the right dosage because everybody we had previously been working with, we had been working with them for, I don't know, six, seven years. Uh, and so over time, that dosage increases. Uh, and so, you know, particularly for things like a pre-match opposition report, uh, at the beginning of the season, it starts off very small. And they say, okay, these are just the, the bits of actionable information we want. But then over the course of the season, well, it's like, oh, well, I have a question about this. Can you add this in? Can you add this in? And so then it grows and it grows and it grows. And, you know, you're used to it. So, um, you know, it's not quite an issue. And then I think when you have a coaching staff come in, um, you know, with Emery's staff, they had previous, they had a different setup at PSG. So it was different metrics, different terminology, uh, different language. So everything was quite different. And so I think we just, we got the dosage wrong and probably needed to peel it back a little. Um, but, you know, I think something that I still struggle with to this day is you want to pre present the data in a way that's actionable, but you're dealing with people that are so detail oriented and have such a nuanced way of viewing the game. You need to also encapsulate that. And so finding that balance, I think, can be really difficult. I wonder if it's better to get too much or too little. Yeah, I, I think it depends on uh, the individual, because um, there was, you know, a, another member of Emery's staff, uh, Javi Garcia. Uh, he's the goalkeeper coach. Absolutely love him. He, he just wanted everything. He wanted everything. And so, yeah, it just comes down to the individual and, you know, what their workload is, what their working style is, what their personality is. I don't think there's a right or a wrong. You know, I think from our side, we just need to get better at understanding those individual personalities and then tailor things to one or the other. You know, and I think too, you know, sometimes we're sending out reports where 
it's going to go to director of football, coaching staff, performance analyst department, or performance analysis department. It's got to be three different reports. It can't be the same report because it's three different audiences. It seems to me that quite a big thing at clubs now is the data translation. So I know I've seen interviews with Ian Graham and I think he said he wouldn't generally communicate directly with the coaching staff. It would be through the analysts. So data science to analysts to Jurgen Klopp and the coaches. Um, I know Man City have a kind of visualisation team led by Ravi Mistry. Yeah, kind of tableau experts. Do you think that is crucial at clubs to have that bridge between data science and coaching and other departments? I don't know if I would say crucial, but I think in a lot of situations, it makes sense. Um, You know, one thing, particularly as you get to larger and larger football clubs, uh, the number of individuals that that coaching staff are interacting with can just explode and become huge. And so I think as a way of kind of... um, protecting them from kind of information overload. If you can minimize the number of interactions, um, I think that's quite optimal. Um, But I think the second thing is you want to make sure that the message is agreed upon between performance analysis and data analysis. You don't want to kind of contradict each other. And then the coaching staff has to say, who do I believe? So I think it's really valuable to have those discussions ahead of time. Um, You know, absolutely, you guys can disagree, but eventually that disagreement needs to be resolved. So do that resolution prior to going to the coaching staff rather than letting the coaching staff try to do that resolution because they just don't have the, the bandwidth. Um, you know, they're under incredible stress, pressure, time constraints to kind of be having this like, which one do I believe? I think a lot of times they just want to say like, tell me the information and then I'll make a decision on it rather than having to weigh so many factors. And a big debate we've had on the website is about the relationship between data and human eyes in terms of scouting and recruitment. So I was just wondering how that worked at Arsenal, whether data was the first step and then the scouts were deployed afterwards or whether there was a different blend. Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely changed over the years. Um, You know, I think early on it was kind of working separately and then fighting it out at the end. And then it was more kind of a shift of like, well, We'll kind of bubble up some targets and then do due diligence on the, the final list. And then I think now it's kind of much more collaborative and integrated. And I think it's working quite well now where um, just constant dialogue of, you know, uh, filtering up um, potential targets. StatDNA is really fortunate in that they can go off and collect data on any player in the world that has video. So if it's a player that they don't currently have data coverage on, but has been flagged from elsewhere, they can go get that data, come back. And then, yeah, just constant dialogue of like, what are the blind spots that we have in this player? What do we want to know about him that we currently don't know? And then trying to fill in those blind spots, whether it be through scouting or through data or ideally both. Because I know that Edu has spoken about the club leaning more heavily on stat DNA in terms of the scouting and recruitment and quite a lot of scouts left as part of that process. I don't know if this has been kind of highlighted as much in uh, the press, but a big part of that is shifting uh, people like Mark Curtis and Ben Knapper into recruitment roles. Um, they both come from performance analysis backgrounds. So people that have been working with data basically their whole Careers. I mean, Ben was there from day one of StatDNA, um, so he's incredibly well versed in using data 
you know, to analyze the game and now using it in a recruitment context. So I think that was, you know, a clever shift in terms of like the personnel doing the scouting. Yeah, he focuses on the loans, doesn't he, Ben, now? He, f- he focuses on the loans, but I think he's also incru- uh, uh, involved in recruitment, particularly within the UK. Our podcast sponsor, Huddle, can help change the way you see the game. More than 35,000 football teams across the world use their pro suite tools to combine video and data into powerful insights and winning strategies via one connected platform. Huddle also offers consultancy services for high-performance sport with world-class experience and expertise in data management, player recruitment, and head coach search. For more information, go to huddle.com forward slash TGG podcast. And then I did the article on when you left Arsenal. When would that have been now? 2021, was it? A couple of years ago? Yeah, I think coming up right around two years now. What were the circumstances around that? Yeah, I mean, there were a number of different reasons for the change. Um, But I think, you know, a big part of it was I'd been there for close to 10 years. um, And there's not a lot of turnover in staff at Arsenal, or at least there hadn't been up until that point. Um, So I kind of found myself working one club, one league with kind of similar staff. Um, you know, I, I love the people that I was working with, but, you know, you get to a point where you're just kind of saying, like, am I growing as much as I should be? Do I need kind of a change of scenery um, to kind of push myself on? Um, you know, Arsenal is a great club. And so I think it was, it was a difficult decision to leave. Um, but then I think it was also dis- difficult to decide what next? Um, you don't necessarily want to go and work at another club because would you just be doing the same thing at Arsenal? But having to start over from zero, having to fight all those same fights that you fought 10 years ago. Um, so I think that was you know, a big reason for wanting to do something a little bit different as well. And I think I wrote in the article that you were one of the most senior women in uh, in football, in general, in UK football. Was that something that kind of entered your mind? Did you feel like a pioneer? Was that something you're aware of? You know, I, I think at the time I, I didn't. And now reflecting on it, I do a little bit more. Um, so because, you know, you're always working with kind of the same people at Arsenal, you don't tend to focus on uh, things like that too much. I mean, everybody kind of knew me, respected me. Um, so there weren't any issues. But then when you, you leave and you take a step back and it's like, oh, there aren't that many women in this field in general. Um, and then to be kind of one of the more senior ones, it's, um, yeah, I think it's a nice feeling. Um, and then last year I attended, uh, the inaugural women in sports, uh, women in sports data conference. Um, so it was held in New York city. And to me, that was kind of like a, a groundbreaking moment for me. Um, cause for so long I felt like I'm the only one, I'm the only one. Uh, and then, you know, I spent a Saturday afternoon literally in a gymnasium full of women interested in sports, uh, data, and technology. And so you realize, like, okay, so I might have been the only one back then, but things are really changing. And there's loads and loads of uh, women who are out there now who, who want to get uh, either started in the industry or they're on their career path. And um, so it's really cool. And then, you, you know, you also get a chance to meet women 
from other sports. Um, and so there's, there's quite a lot of women in senior roles in other American sports. Um, and so it's, it's just great to kind of celebrate the work that they're doing. Um, but yeah, it's, it's fun to kind of look around and, and see kind of the next generation and, and know that like, I didn't have anybody to kind of look up to. Mm. Um, and hopefully I can kind of uh, be somebody that they can, they can model and say, yeah, this is a viable career path for me. And we had someone called Mariella Nizataki on the uh, podcast and she's head of emerging talent at Norwich. And she said she was the only female um, on the on the circuit for scouting, but she would get quite a lot of girls and women contacting her asking for advice and how to get into the industry. So, is that something you would experience as well? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's really nice. I try to spend as much time as I can talking with students, um, encouraging them. Uh, you know, with different things they can do to kind of get into the industry. It's difficult. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of initiatives that I've been a part of. Um, there was one during the pandemic. It was basically office hours for people who were underrepresented in the sports industry. Um, so anybody who's not a, a white man, basically. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, I would just set some time up on my calendar um, and then people could schedule like a 30 minute call with me. Um, and so that was great. And then I actually ended up hiring one of those people kind of, um, you know, not intentionally, but um, at kind of the place where I was in between Arsenal and Source Football, um, I looked at this resume and I said, I think I know this person. Uh, and so when we interviewed him, I said, did we chat last year? And he said, yeah, absolutely. And then I, you know, went on and did X, Y, and Z um, based on your advice. And I was like, well, fantastic. Now you're in a really good, good spot to transition into this. So. Um, yeah, it's it's beneficial for, I think, all parties, initiatives like that. And you did have at least one other female data scientist, didn't you, on the team at Arsenal? Yeah, so I had um, a female data scientist, uh, Susanna Ferreras. Um, oh, yeah. So she's uh, at the training ground in London Colney. Um, she also does work with the Spanish women's national basketball team. So just like a really cool... Um, Profile, but when we were actually hiring for the position that um, Mikhail Zilkin uh, got, um, we only had two women applicants, uh, and one of them was Susanna. And so, you know, she had won a silver medal at the Olympics with the Spanish basketball team, uh, and the other one was uh, a woman working in Formula One. And unfortunately, she had to to drop out. I would have loved to have chatted with her but she just didn't have time to go through the interview process but it was just really shocking um how few female candidates there were um and then with Susanna you know she was so impressive that we decided to kind of shuffle things around and and make a, a position for her um and then also kind of behind the scenes uh I had a female software engineer with me in Seattle named Shauna Story um so in the Stat DNA Seattle office there for a long time there was three of us um, myself, Shauna, and a gentleman named Tyler Cox, who's now at the Seattle Sounders. So I didn't realize it until I was leaving, but it was a female dominant office, which was really cool. And did you ever encounter any issues because of being a woman? Was anyone ever dismissive to you because of that in football? No, I think probably more because I'm American. Um, oh. I think that's, you know, always people question like, how much do you really know about football? You're American. Like, 
surely you know more about baseball and things like that. So um, I think I think that's it. You know, I think I was really fortunate to work at Arsenal with such lovely people where, um, you know, you're, you're working with the best of the best. And so it wasn't really ever an issue, or at least uh, not to my face. And I often get asked if I can rank clubs in England in terms of their data science provision. Is it possible to do that, do you think? Are there sort of a top three or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's quite difficult because um, no, nobody ever really knows what exactly is going on behind the scenes, um, what went into the decision-making process. But I think you can kind of reverse engineer transfers a little bit and say, you know, are these uh, good moves? Are these not so good moves? So, um, you know, certainly I think uh, Brighton and Brentford are probably well up there, even though they're probably the most secretive of the bunch. Um, but yeah, their transfer business has been phenomenal for the last couple of years. And both of those clubs kind of have independent data science departments, don't they, really, because of the business that their owners are in. Um, and I've had some clubs saying we can't compete with that because of the number of data scientists those clubs have. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's really smart setup where, um, you know, you kind of have, you make this investment in analytics that serves two purposes. And it's going to be a little bit tailored to one or the other. Um, analytics that you would do for betting is quite different from what you would do for for recruitment, but that foundation is there. And, you know, certainly anything involving proprietary data collection um, is going to be really valuable on both sides of the business. And you were talking right at the start about clubs maybe not leveraging tracking data as much as they could. What could the developments be there, do you think? In terms of like broad question or areas of questioning, um, that I think are going to be solved soon. Um, certainly off-ball off movement, I think a lot of questions around the impact of teammates. Um, so how much are your kind of like receptions in behind based on your movement versus the ability of a teammate to find you? Um, and then I think, you know, the big area that is still going to be quite difficult to answer is just around defensive abilities. I think that's something that you can kind of scratch the surface with with traffic tracking data, um, but in terms of actually figuring out why is Virgil Van Dyke so good, um, I, that's going to be a difficult one. Um, but I think you know, there's also this whole new world of questions around how can we, I don't know, get more certainty around a player's ability to translate from one league to another um, and tracking data I think will be really helpful for that in terms of you know what's the physical context they're operating in in their current league versus where they're going to be going but I think also just understanding a lot more in terms of like uh, team shape team dynamics um, what kind of defensive situations are you finding yourself in things like that. And talking there about the defensive abilities I know David Sumter was talking for example with Virgil van Dijk and I think he called it the amount of space that he is able to control on his own. And I think he was kind of top of the Premier League at his peak for that. Is that the type of thing you're thinking about there? Yeah, I think, you know, certainly space is a, it's a big part of it. Um, and then I think, you know, decision making is a big part of it. And decision making, you know, it's not done in isolation. And neither is space. Space is always relative to your teammates and your opponents. Um, so I think kind of being able to figure out like what's um, 
what's because of you versus what's because of the situation and your your teammates. I think that's the the difficult part still. And it seems to me that coming up with metrics is quite a big thing for data scientists. Is that almost like kind of songwriters coming up with their songs in a way, having your own metric <laughs> and your own label for a metric? <laughs> yeah, it's ah, uh, it's it's difficult because you know I think. There's certainly this this culture, or there was, um, maybe I'm too old now to, to really participate in it, but, you know, I think a lot of people, and myself included, got their breaks in the industry because of Twitter. I think mine less directly related to having, like, a huge Twitter following, but certainly the interactions I had on Twitter um, were very helpful in my career. Um, but I think, you know, there's this culture of, like, making a name for yourself on Twitter, and certainly part of it is having, like, a, a catchy name for your metrics. So yeah, I think there is, you know, a little bit of that. And, and maybe it's gone a little bit too far, um, where you don't want to have the industry kind of full of acronyms that don't really make sense. So I think you want to have things tied a little bit more down to um, like footballing concepts. But even that I think is difficult because if you're working across uh, different clubs and different countries, every country has their own footballing language. David Sumter mentioned you on the pod. He was saying that you'd come up with expected threat, which is a big metric now. And I know you also did a lot on uh, passing values as well. Yeah, and so, you know, this was me being terrible at personal marketing. I don't even remember what I titled that paper or even if I had a name for that metric, but it was something horrendous and terrible. And then um, Karun Singh comes along and names like a, a similar concept, um, expected threat. And I think people gravitated to that because it made more more sense where you have expected goals and then you have expected threats. So, you know, the implementation of what he was doing is quite different from what I was doing. Um, but yeah, he, he did a great job, I think, naming it. And so you can go around to people and say expected threat and people kind of <laughs> understand what that means. What was the work that you'd done around the passing values? Before I was really in the industry, StatDNA had a research paper competition. Um, and so to walk it back even further, I knew I wanted to get into football analytics. Football analytics didn't really exist back then, but I had had the pleasure of chatting with Mike Ford at one of the early MIT Sloan Sports Analytics conferences. And I explained to him my situation and what I wanted to do, and, and he gave me the advice. He said, look, anybody can say that they can analyze football data, but what football clubs really want is for somebody to show them what they can do. Um, so fast forward one year later, StatDNA um, is at the, the next year's conference. They have this research paper competition where they'll give you, I think it was like one season of Brazilian uh, data. And I thought, look, this is the opportunity that I've been looking for where I can really show clubs like what I can do. Um, so I took the data that they provided uh, and I built what's called like a Markov chain model um, where basically it was looking at what's the value of the situation that the player is in currently and then where did they move the ball? Is the team more likely to score from that situation they just put their teammate in or are they less likely to score? And so you can assign numbers to that probabilities of you know how much did they increase the probability of scoring or not. Um, and so that was kind of my first model, but it didn't, didn't have a good name. Um, but yeah, that was kind of how I got my start. And then from there, um, it got to present 
at uh, Nessus, the New England Symposium in Sports. Got to chat with Jason Rosenfeld afterwards, um, and he decided to offer me a job. So that's kind of uh, okay. how how my story kind of comes full circle, I guess. Because I talk to people who have good followings on Twitter, and that has led to people getting jobs, as you say. But what most of them have said to me is there's a huge difference between what clubs actually want and need and what they were doing on Twitter. So the smart ones evolve quite a bit then. Um, but they say there is a distinction. Yeah, ab- absolutely. You know, and I think why that paper that I wrote kind of resonated with people is that it it's something that's quite useful in recruitment. And so what I was kind of thinking about is if I worked inside a club, what are the sorts of things I would want to know to make these decisions? Um, and sometimes that's not necessarily what people want to read. Like Twitter, Twitter is for fun. Twitter is entertainment um, for a lot of people. Um, and so, you, you know, people like to have debates about who's better and, and things like that. Or, you know, why is this team good? Why does this team fall off a cliff? Um, some of that stuff isn't necessarily actionable or, or how a, a club would approach it. And so, yeah, there's, there's a huge gulf. And then, you know, for me, you know, we're talking about 12 years ago when I got hired into StatDNA. I was absolutely blown away at what they were already doing. They already had a pass value model. They just implemented it in a different way. Um, so there's also that huge gulf of what's happening in the public sphere versus what's going on behind the scenes internally at a club where you're you're thinking about these things full time rather than you know just on a, a Saturday or in your evenings. From a selfish point of view, I always find it a bit of a shame that people who were very active in the public sphere, is when they do get a job in club football, that's it. You don't really hear from them publicly anymore. But I guess we understand the reasons for that as well. Yeah, it's it's something that, you know, I've never been happy with. Um, you know, like I said, Arsenal is quite secretive. They wanted to keep everything uh, in-house. But I love chatting with people. I love chatting with young people. Um, so I think that's one of the nice things about my, my current situation is I can be a little bit more open and, and chat with people. And, you know, I don't want to tell people, like, do this, don't do that. But, um, you know, I love seeing the work that, that people are doing and, you know, maybe provide uh, constructive feedback on some things. But, you know, I think for me, uh, the early part of my career was just trying things and then seeing why they don't work. Um, because I think early on, like, I had football analytics solved. Like, I was absolutely certain, just throw all the numbers into a neural network and your job is done. And, like, <laughs> nobody would, would try that now. I mean, I'm sure we're probably moving back towards that with um, just throw it into, like, a convolutional neural network or something like that. But, um, you know, I, I learned so much by trial and error, and I think that's really useful for people. So, yeah, I, I love to see people do it doing their own work out there. And I was just going to finish by looking at the future of uh, data analytics. So there's a lot of talk about artificial intelligence at the moment, um, chat GPT. Has that got the potential to make a big impact right now in football, do you think? Or is it more about getting these basics right first? Yeah, I think I think we're still in an age where we need to get the basics right. I see a lot of bad stuff out there still um, where people are kind of assuming that a number means something when it when it doesn't um so i think we have to nail the basics still um that said i think we're already seeing huge impacts on us so 
all of the broadcast tracking data is built off of deep learning models, um, object recognition and being able to figure out the homography of, of all of those images. So it's been impacting us for, I think, a couple of years without really uh, noticing it. I think, you know, just in terms of like day-to-day -day productivity, I rely heavily on ChatGPT to do things that uh, I'm not an expert in or not necessarily good at, but like, um, you know, there's certain ways that I use it to make me more productive. Um, but I don't think we're at the point where you can kind of, you know, have ChatGPT do all the work for you. Um, a, a fun way that I entertain myself is have ChatGPT write scouting reports for different players. And they sound really realistic, but they're kind of full of lies. Um, so I think that's, you know, one of the things we have to be careful with is that it just makes up a lot of stuff still. Some people fear it, don't they really? And fear that it will replace them and make them uh, superfluous. But that's not going to be the case, you don't think, in the majority of cases. No, I, I don't think so. I think, you know, people's jobs will change and certainly some individuals will be impacted by it. But, you know, chat GPT can write a scouting report. Do I want it replacing my scouts? Absolutely not. <laughs> so, you know, I think that's... Um, I think that's probably like a a good way of kind of saying like, you know, most people think your job will be safe or your job will be just altered, hopefully for the best, where you're no longer having to do kind of a lot of the repetitive work. Oh, that's fantastic. Thanks so much for your time, Sarah. Yeah, my pleasure. It was great chatting. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to the Training Ground Guru podcast in association with Huddle. We'll be back next month with another episode. In the meantime, you can follow our latest updates on the website and on Twitter at ground underscore guru.